It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I think I have to explain to the people of Australia the threats we face. And of course, we could just have a view and take our own action and deal with it quietly. But I think it's important not to alarm them, but just to help them understand the world in which we live. When I think about the changes that are playing out today, I think about complexity and scale and velocity. I think that's what marks this new order or disorder that we're moving into. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome back to the National Security Podcast. I'm Rory Medcalf, Head of the National Security College at the Australian National University. Uh, Before we begin, I'll acknowledge the uh, traditional custodians of the land, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and pay respects to their elders. The National Security College is really pleased to be presenting uh, a very special podcast discussion today, looking at one of the most sensitive and important topics in Australian national security, and that is the role of intelligence, the role of our intelligence community. And we have two very special guests for this conversation. It's a pleasure to welcome to the studio Andrew Shearer, the Director General of the Office of National Intelligence. And with Andrew, to welcome Mike Burgess, the Director General of Security, uh, the head of ASIO. And of course, Andrew and Mike, if I can uh, speak to you both on first name terms for this conversation, are leaders of our intelligence community, along with the heads of the other intelligence agencies, and play vital roles in informing decision-making in the Australian government and indeed uh, with Australia's partners and allies in this incredibly contested time in our national security. But many questions often arise in the public mind as to what is intelligence, the purpose of intelligence, the role of intelligence in an age of enormous volumes of open source information. And despite some significant efforts in recent years to, I think, demystify what intelligence is and why it matters to the national interest, uh, some confusion still remains, I think. So the purpose of our conversation today is to shed as much light as we can on the role of intelligence in Australian security policy, and in particular to think a little about the future of this uh, of this craft, the future of this capability for Australia in a contested age. So a few questions for our guests, and I appreciate that um, some of these are are pretty sensitive topics that go to uh, classified areas of work. So I don't anticipate that every question will get the answer I want. But let's start at the beginning. Uh, For both of you, and maybe we'll begin with you, Andrew, what actually is intelligence? Well, Rory, first, thanks for having us. It's great to be back at the college and really look forward to the conversation For me, there are many, many definitions of intelligence and there are many different forms of intelligence. But fundamentally, intelligence is nothing more than information that can provide decision makers with advance warning of threats to our national security or our national prosperity, but also of opportunities that we might face as a nation and um, actionable insights into the world and how it affects Australia's national interests. And that's uh, important, I guess, because you've all, you haven't said automatically that all intelligence is necessarily secret. Far from it. Um, as you alluded, the volume of uh, open source information that's available continues to grow exponentially. 
there's so much data out there that in fact one of our challenges and we'll probably come to it is how to deal with all that data, how to ingest it, how to understand it, how to organise it and how to analyse it. Uh, so absolutely, open source is critical, but there are still roles for more traditional classified covert forms of information, whether they're derived from human intelligence operations or more technical means, including signals intelligence, cyber, and so forth. And we'll come back to some of that in a moment, uh, Andrew, but Mike, what's intelligence to you? Yeah, thanks, Rory. And again, great. Thank you for having me here. Great to be here with you and Andrew. Um, like Andrew, intelligence is uh, information that provides insights, allows people to make informed decisions. Context does matter, so the real definition depends on where you're applying that, those insights or information to make decisions. So in the context of the security service, it's actually that information, that intelligence that enables us to identify or understand, harden and disrupt threats to security. We'll come in a moment to what the Australian agencies therefore do, if that's uh, your working definition of intelligence. But I think to introduce you a little bit more to the conversation, it would be great to understand uh, a bit more about why you're both in this game. How did you uh, come to intelligence as uh, a leadership point of your careers? Uh, Not every kid necessarily grows up wanting to be a spy, so to speak. And not everyone who uh, wants to work in this space is necessarily cut out for it. So just curious to know, and I might uh, start with you actually, Mike, how did you get, how did you become DG ASIO and how did you set about this uh, this career? It's a great question and I wish I knew, although actually, to be honest, I do know how I got here, but that my journey started a long time ago like everyone else. Um, I had no idea that I would be uh, head of an intelligence security agency at this stage of my life. I was an engineer, electronics engineer. I just wanted to do fun, electronic, geeky things. And that just evolved over time until one day I saw a job advert in the paper. That's when jobs were advertised in newspapers. It was the size of about a postage stamp and it didn't say who it was, but it was appealing from a technical point of view. It turned out to be the Defence Signals Directorate. The rest is history. So this is this is back in the twentieth twentieth century, but you've moved in and out, right? You've worked in the private sector, you've worked out of government. Uh, what's the appeal of being back in? Yeah, well, the, move, the the reason for moving in and out is simply my advice to anyone who wants career advice: actually do what you enjoy, and when you don't enjoy it, go find something you want to enjoy. So that's why I've moved in and out, not because I had some clever strategy that thought that would make me a better head of an intelligence agency, although it has made me a better head of intelligence agency because it gives you a broader perspective. But the real reason I'm here is simply, and I'm sure it's the same for Andrew and other colleagues in our organisations in the community, it's simply to make a difference. And actually, I can't think of no more important time where we are today in the world, actually to be part of a community, part of an organisation and in partnership with our friends on actually making a difference to Australia's a position in the world and our safety and security. And Andrew, what about you? Intelligence uh, is one part of your career, but uh, how and why is it uh, something that's so important to you in a leadership role? There's actually a common link here, Rory. Um, Mike knows this better than anyone. I'm not a tech geek like him. I'm a liberal arts bluffer uh, with uh, majors in history and politics and a law degree, and I was finishing my law degree when I saw a very similar postage stamp-sized obscure advertisement, and it was also for the Defence Signals Directorate. At that time, though, in Melbourne, uh, before the move to Canberra and the transition into the Australian Signals Directorate, and it was an exciting time, but it was also a time when, for intelligence, you might have thought it wasn't the most promising time to be starting a career because the Berlin Wall was coming down, The Cold War was coming to an end and we'd moved into what George Herbert Walker Bush uh, called the New World Order at the time. Um, So perhaps not not a growth industry or that's how it felt now, but I have to say there's there's plenty of demand signal uh, now. And as you said, Rory, I've worked in different roles in policy. Um, I've worked in uh, a couple of prime minister's offices as a national security advisor Uh, But after working in DSD, I had a stint in what was then the Office of National Assessments, a much smaller, quieter um, and more uh, long-term oriented organisation, I think it's fair to say, um, before moving into those, those policy roles. So for me, 
coming back to lead ONI and the really important all-source assess- assessment work that ONI does and the open source uh, collection and coordination work we do and our newer role in coordinating and leading uh, the 10 agencies of the national intelligence community um, feels to me um, like coming home in a way to a mission that I've been involved in one way or another over 30 years now. And that's a really uh, useful way to get into that uh, conversation about the change we've seen in the agencies. So as you say now, Andrew, 10 agencies in the national intelligence community, and it's not that long ago. And I remember as a former analyst with the then Office of National Assessments, that I think we talked about six agencies in the Australian intelligence community uh, earlier this century. But there's been rapid change, particularly over the last five to 10 years. It'd be really useful to hear from uh, each of you about that change. In particular, uh, if you look at the intelligence community today as opposed to, let's say, five or six years ago, and there was, of course, in 2017, a review uh, by my predecessor at the National Security College, uh, Michael Lestrange, and, and by Stephen Merchant as well, into uh, the Australian intelligence community. What's changed? Uh, how different is the, the landscape and the intelligence architecture now to what you would have known just a few years ago? Andrew? And I think the short answer is it's radically different. Um, Those reviewers were pretty far-sighted, it turns out, in identifying the challenges facing our community. They recognised that geopolitical change was underway. They recognised that there was disruptive technological change which presented real opportunities for intelligence agencies like ours, but also some really pretty daunting challenges, especially around uh, human intelligence operations. And as I said, some of those issues around massive uh, data and how to process it. Uh, So there was a really um, far-sighted understanding that we needed to do our work differently, that the individual agencies were performing at a very high standard but that we needed to bring in some of those other agencies who brought complementary capabilities and legal authorities to join what's now the national intelligence community, that the agencies needed to start working together in new ways and to become a more integrated community, better coordination, better sharing of information and better sharing of technology and capability, more efficiency, And that's very much um, the approach that I've tried to take since I became Director General. Uh, I've got fantastic colleagues right across the other nine agencies, and it's great to be here with with one today. And Mike's just an incredibly important partner in that broader community endeavour. What about the change from your perspective, Mike? Yeah, so I, I mean, ASIO has been around a long time. So, what's new? Yeah, so I'll answer. I mean, obviously, I'm the head of ASIO now, but I'll answer in the context of yeah. when I came back into government service as a Australian Signals Director. That was as a result of the intelligence review, and obviously, so I pay great attention to it. And as Andrew said, um, it wasn't commenting on the, I guess, the, the the substance of each agency, but it recognised what was happening in the world and said, actually, you need to lift. Because you're already individually good, but actually that's not enough. You actually need to lift in the way Andrew uh, described. And uh, so that's changed. And actually what's really changed is we have lifted. We know we're, we're hard on ourselves. We know we've got more to do. But we are doing things together in cloud, in vetting, and other areas. And um, I'm, we're on very much on the right path in that regard. So it has very much changed. The other thing that's changed in the last ten years, of course, is some of the agencies have got into new things or had new capability challenges they've had to address. But all of that's about changes in the world and the needs of what our government has had, and we're responding well to that collectively. So let's talk about the changes in the world at this point and, and perhaps how they are affecting the work that you do. Uh, I mentioned at the, the outset of our conversation, I guess, a statement of the obvious. It's a, it's a contested strategic environment for Australia. It's disrupted. It's not only disrupted for Australia, but really for the whole world. 
we're looking at strategic challenges. We're obviously looking at the impact of Chinese power and the way China's using that power, uh, coercion, military modernization, uh, and really, I think, full spectrum competition with the United States and, uh, and others. We're looking at the impact of Russia's aggression uh, against Ukraine and what that means for really a, not only a rules-based order, but uh, frankly, respect for uh, sovereignty of, of nations. We're looking at transnational shocks and threats and so much more. And it seems, of course, that the boundaries between what is an international risk and what is a domestic risk have, have fundamentally broken down. The boundaries between, you know, technology and people, between economics and security, it seems overwhelming from where I sit for the intelligence community. I just wonder if, if um, both of you, and maybe back starting with you again, Mike, could reflect on what that means for your work. How do you respond? Sure. So I'll answer that in the context of um, our core business hasn't changed, but obviously the the world around us is changing and therefore we change as a response to that in line with what we're trying to achieve. So we describe the security environment as complex, challenging and changing as you articulated, but I'll give you the, the short there. I mean, great power competition. As a result of great power competition, we're seeing a change in technology driven by that great power competition. Um, and all that comes with that. The tech sector, if I could loosely say this, and I'm not the uh, the national assessment type here, but let me chance my arm, Andrew. Um, the tech sector has moved east. Nothing wrong with that, except for what that means in the context of great power competition. And we're more, all of us today are more dependent on technology. And when we become more dependent on technology, that represents some great opportunities with some downside risks because of that great power competition and how things might play out. We have climate change at play. So there's things happening. My agency's role, though, actually hasn't changed. Our heads of security are still the same. But what has changed is part of the world change. Um, There's been some great work globally on countering terrorism. And whilst terrorism is still a thing, the terrorism level here in Australia has lowered as a result of some great work across the community and across the country. Um, it's still a thing globally, but it's a driver. But actually, espionage and foreign interference as a result of great power competition has supplanted terrorism as our principal security concern. So what's changed for ASIO? We've got to maintain our CT capability, but actually we've got to lift our rate on countering espionage and foreign interference. And we might get to that later in this uh, uh, podcast. We're doing some great work in that regard. What does the change mean for you, Andrew, for the Office of National Intelligence, and I guess the broader intelligence effort that, uh, you know, from an enterprise perspective, uh, ONI leads. So, Rory, when I think the changes, when I think about the changes that are playing out today, I think about complexity and scale and velocity, and I think that's what marks this new order or disorder that we're moving into. Uh, as separate from what we certainly what we've lived through for most of my career, all of my career, um, and when I think about that complexity, what I'm driving at is earlier in my career, uh, crises would come along: the Asian financial crisis, the East Timor crisis, you know, wars in the Middle East, um, and so forth, and they tended to be. Um, you tended to see them coming a way off. They tended to play themselves out uh, and eventually they would fade away um, and then sometime in the future you'd see the warning signs and you'd be into another one. What we face now, I would say, is a sort of cascading series of systemic crises. So I think we're still feeling the ramifications of the global financial crisis, which is now quite a long... Sort of 14, 15 years ago. Exactly. (laughs) We're still living in the long tail political, economic, uh, social of the COVID pandemic, and it's going to be with us for many more years. It's going to continue uh, weakening societies, feeding um, uh, vulnerabilities in more fragile countries, undermining social cohesion, driving wedges within countries and between countries. And then there's the whole climate system and the energy transition, which relates back. And then technology, which Mike talked about very eloquently, and it's positive and negative disruptive effects. And, you know, the 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 one of the moment, of course, is artificial intelligence. The world sort of woken up and said, well, 
it's all about artificial intelligence this year. Um, and then the overlay of geopolitics, uh, which is, as I've said before, very much back with a vengeance. And at ONI, in our all-source assessment role for the government, we have a really important current intelligence warning function. We work with Mike's agency, the other agencies, to provide that that constant feed of current intelligence to to give government that decision-making advantage. But our unique and critical function is actually making sense of complexity. And that's not ever going to be perfect, but it's about having really smart people. It's about integrating information from open sources and from all the other classified sources. It's about contesting ideas, testing assumptions, working with our international partners, especially the Five Eyes partners, but increasingly a wider group of partners to frame issues for government and to help government think its way through big complex policy problems. And if we're doing our job really, really well, we'll be thinking about the next big complex policy problem that's coming that government hasn't even got on its radar yet. And so that, just to sort of clarify for listeners who still don't perhaps understand the day-to-day workings of, of, the, of this machine, that involves effectively trying to give government that decision advantage every day on breaking issues or issues that you anticipate, but it also involves some sort of longer-term anticipation or, or foresight. I mean, how, do, how do you juggle both, Andrew? It's incredibly difficult to juggle both, Rory, and that goes back to my point about velocity, just the speed at which issues emerge and and play out um, places a real strain on an organisation like mine that um, is around 300, a bit larger than that. And um, as I said, I've got brilliant people, um, all of them, I'd like to think, uh, and they're very, very smart. But to manage that day-to-day workload and still have the bandwidth and the intellectual freedom and the courage to deal with those longer-term, harder, more strategic issues is is really important. I'll give one example of that that latter um, category of work, and that is um, it's it's widely known before um, uh, before the election. Uh, the now government committed to a major assessment on the national security implications of climate change. Uh, when they came into office, the government, the Prime Minister, uh, tasked me with preparing that assessment. And that's an absolutely huge body of work. Uh, it involves really detailed intelligence analysis, outreach to our partners, to non-government experts across Australia and globally, uh, a lot of really tough methodological uh, thinking mm. uh, and, as I said at the start, a, a really complex set of issues to get your arms around and just organise intellectually. So we have to be able to do that while at the same time warning about the possibility of a, a terror attack, which would often come through the great work that that Mike's team at ASIO do, or a negative development somewhere in the South Pacific, or um, or other challenges arising in Southeast Asia, or indeed globally. And just to draw that out a little further, and I will come back to you in a moment, Mike, particularly on the question of um, of capability advantage. So, kind of a bit of forewarning there, but but Andrew. Um, the relationship between intelligence and policy is sometimes misunderstood. You talk about intelligence giving decision advantage to government. Uh, so how does that translate into, relate, into the relationship between intelligence and the policy world? Rory, if, if it's working well, and I believe it is working well currently and has been uh, for uh, for a while now, intelligence and policy are working hand in glove. So we bring capabilities uh, to government that are a, an essential part of the government's statecraft toolkit. And many of these efforts will be led by DFAT in the sense of traditional diplomacy using our network of uh, diplomatic posts around the world obviously with a, a, a particular focus on the Indo-Pacific region, defence and uh, not only its capabilities but its extensive network of defence engagement and cooperation uh, relationships and so forth and 
intelligence can bring that decision making edge to the work of those uh, those departments and those um, uh, especially offshore, but we can also bring additional capabilities. We are spending more and more time working with other partners. Uh, we're building capacity with our partners in the Pacific and across Southeast Asia. We are coordinating much more actively with our traditional partners in that work. Obviously, the Five Eyes sits right at the heart of all of that international cooperation and coordination, but we're also building new partners with country, uh, partnerships with countries like Japan and India, for example. And uh, what we're doing is trying to build up their situational awareness. We're trying to build their knowledge of problems that are of concern to us in Australia because fundamentally, the more that their intelligence services are seeing the same picture that we're seeing and the same threat environment that we're seeing, we're creating a higher base for our policymakers to reach agreement on the nature of the problem and to act in concert. And we're not going to solve any of these problems without that type of international cooperation. And that, um, that choreography all takes into account, I guess, the view that we're good at what we do. Uh, we've traditionally been good at what we do, but we're in a strategic competition, as we've been talking about. We're in a constant competition, uh, and not just with one with one country, I suspect. So how how do we maintain an edge? And I'll come back to you there, Mike. I mean, that's partly sure. to do with technology. It's partly to do with people. Um, are we maintaining an edge? Um, how do we know? And in particular, how do we do it in a technology sense? Sure, if I may. Without uh, revealing uh, any secrets. Well, no, I can, I can, I can definitely answer that question. But if I first, I would actually just quickly touch You're on the point to about the, secrets, the, by the, the way, tactical, <laughs> the ta tactical and strategic problems, and how do you do that? And as Andrew said, that's the job of all of us in the community. Actually, it's the here and now and the future. And for my agency, obviously, threats to security now have to be dealt with, but we also have to make some hard decisions and say we're not going to touch that at this stage because I need to and I'm responsible for looking at those threats to security that are on the horizon or over the horizon coming our way. That is very much part of our job. Sorry, that's a bit cryptic. What do you mean? Well, so you know, if I know there's an extremist plotting to kill someone, we and the police will deal with it. Um, if we know there's potential spies in this country, well, we're not all seeing or knowing, but we'll deal with them when we find them. But sometimes we've got to make some hard decisions in terms of where we are in investigation. I'm not going to spend any more time on that lead at this point because actually I do need to have people who are looking at the looming threats as they evolve because the world is changing around us. And we'd be negligent if we just dealt yeah. with the problems we have before us. The high priority ones I can assure you we deal with. But leadership is about taking that gutsy decision and going, you know what? No, I'm going to focus on that looming threat because that's our job, which gives the government a better position to handle and make informed decisions. The capability advantage, um, this one you've got to be careful of. It's a job of any intelligence agency. Mm. Um, we are successful. Um, you know, Andrew and I get to read some great stuff and get some, see some benefits of the work that the community does. Um, we do that because we have methods and techniques and tradecraft that our targets, our adversaries think are impossible. Now, that's the secret source. That's the stuff we don't talk about. But we don't rest on our laurels because sometimes we might be reading some really great stuff that's being fed to us and we think we're being clever. And that's why my people, Andrew's people, in the other agencies, we have very clever people who look to make sense of information and we just don't fall down a rabbit hole of running off because we've got some great piece in front of us that says that's outstanding. Andrew's people, my people, structured analytical techniques that test and recontest assumptions about what we're seeing and why we're seeing it. That's also part of the capability protection. Um, in terms of the application of technology, Andrew said earlier, we are living in a data-rich world. That's brilliant. Mm. It's also massive vulnerability. So we're all working hard to how do you make sense of that data to extract insights and understanding so we can do our thing to give the government a, its information advantage. That's a whole new capability front, but that's not something the intelligence communities are doing on their own. There are lots of great, clever stuff happening in the private sector that we can just tap into. We don't have to lead. The world is doing it. Of course, if I flip it on its head, as you'd expect me to, our capability advantages are also our potential vulnerabilities for the country because there's a lot of data. If the wrong person has hold of that, they can do things which are counter to our national interests. And that's why the other side of the coin is it's great coin is it's great to have that information advantage, 
How do you stop others having an information advantage against you because you've been free and open, which we all want to be, and you've lost sight of that you've sold an advantage to someone that's going to hurt you at some stage? So absolutely no complacency, eh? Andrew? Yeah. I just add the thought that, you know, Mike's absolutely right and, and that technological edge is incredibly important to all of our work. But when we think about capability, ultimately um, people are just at the heart of everything. And when you think, when you boil our business down to its essentials, what's it about? Um, it's about understanding human beings' actions and, you know, if we're doing well, um, being able to anticipate their intentions. And that's fundamentally human. And that's why the quality of our roughly 9,000 people who work across this community is so important. And I know we're going to come on and talk a bit about workforce challenges, but um, you know, in an in a environment where there's a lot of excited talk about artificial intelligence, um, I'd just like to reassure you and the listeners that we're very well aware of the importance of the human element, uh, both in doing our jobs, but also the impact of that technology, putting in place the right ethical frameworks, the right making sure that everything that's done happens within our legal um uh, frameworks as well. So I just want to provide that reassurance. Just keeping you on that people thing for a moment, Andrew, and we will talk workforce itself a bit later, but how, uh, from an assessment point of view, whether it's O&I or elsewhere in the community, how do you maintain that very dynamic sense of contestability so that people's judgments about the material they're looking at um, is not always following some linear, predictable path, but you know, they're, they're constantly testing their judgments. Uh, Rory, that has given me an opportunity I was looking for, actually, which is to say, um, uh, to pay tribute really to one of my most important mentors and predecessors as Director General of ONA, Alan Gingell. Um, Alan was all about relevance to policy uh, and an incredible uh, human, uh, great leader, but fundamentally he was on about ideas and contestability and testing the quality of thought and analysis. And I think that remains right at the heart of our, our DNA, if you like, and we work very hard to build a an environment where people can express themselves, where you can have a contest of ideas, which is about the contest of ideas, not personalities and, and playing the person, and um, where people are encouraged to be brave and to engage intellectually with issues. And I think we have a whole lot of formal structures. Mike mentioned uh, structured analytical techniques. We find we're leading a lot of those now right across government because people are finding them a really useful way to organise a discussion and to tease out complex issues. We we have built in um, uh, internal content contestability. Our, our analysts share draft product, they they meet. We spend a lot of time refining the analytical question that we're trying to answer that brings discipline. We have red teaming. We have senior analysts who are looking critically, trying to poke holes in arguments. We have a rolling process of review of our key judgments right across our uh, analytical products. And we also come under the scrutiny of the Inspector General for intelligence and security, who is there looking to make sure that all of those contestability arrangements are robust. And then ultimately, I'd say we also have, you know, the, the real test, which is um, whether the prime minister, senior cabinet ministers, senior officials find our work useful. And part of why they find it useful is that it informs them. And if we're not doing that, then we'll get that feedback pretty quickly. Mike, on contestability, how does it work in your shop? It's exactly the same in Andrews. Um, I'm, I'm proud of and, and learnt a lot um, being a former SIG inter, no 
disrespect to my second colleagues listening to this at the collection thing. That's good. It's great you've got some collection, but you've got to do something with it. And actually, you've got to make those assessments. And I've certainly learned the power of actually everything Andrew's just spoken about and had some robust conversations and learnings, including myself learning from the team. Um, that discipline is absolutely critical, including things down to, you know, making sure you understand the bias or what biases you might be presented by the data you've got, because you can start to make some judgments off the data you have. But there is a bias in the fact that that data is perhaps a limited set of what's really happening. It would be easy to make the wrong judgments. And the processes Andrew talked about really help our people, Andrew's people, test that and make sure we're not just being biased or sent down the wrong path in terms of judgments by the piece of paper we have before us, which is incredibly important we do that. Our work impacts people's lives. The community makes a difference to the country, but if we get it wrong, you might see how that happens elsewhere in the world when you do get judgments wrong. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. So we've talked a little bit about the strategic environment, but of course there are changes in Australia's response too. And AUKUS uh, is one of those landmark uh, moments or landmark initiatives in Australian strategic and defence policy that will be with us for a long time and really could change the landscape of how we do security. So Andrew, with AUKUS, with the nuclear submarine program, with all those critical technologies, with all of that uh close and classified work with our our friends and allies, how does that change the landscape for the intelligence community? So, Rory, it is a profoundly important development and it's yet another area where intelligence is working incredibly hard in concert with defence and the wider government team to make sure that we maximise the benefits of the partnership. And that obviously involves a whole lot of opportunities around the nuclear-powered submarine program. But it also involves the new technologies that are being developed under Pillar 2 of AUKUS, which goes to areas like hypersonics, um, quantum applications, sensing, robotics, and so forth. Just incredible opportunities for us. There's a role for intelligence in identifying efforts that are underway to disrupt the AUKUS initiative through disinformation uh, and manipulation of opinion. And, and is this happening? This is happening. It's real. And so there's a role for intelligence, and that's the whole gamut of intelligence uh, that we've been talking about today, including open source intelligence, looking for misleading narratives. Uh, that's, a, that's a reality as well and a very important function for intelligence. But then there's the defensive part of the AUKUS agenda, which is obviously protecting that technology. And I'll throw to my friend Mike on that. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Rory, for the question. Um, give you a perspective on AUKUS. Obviously, it is significant, but 74 years ago, uh, the United States, United Kingdom came to Australia and told Australia you were penetrated with Soviet spies and we cannot trust you with our secrets. ASIO was formed. 74 years later, our allies, our mates, are sharing with us some of their most sensitive technology. They trust us to protect those secrets. 
we know that to be true. And as Andrew said, people are already coming after those secrets and looking to interfere with this. So for me, the security of that is absolutely important. And security is good policy around people, places, technology and information, but good policy implemented, enabled by law, because we always also require the laws of this land to protect those things that need to be protected. And nation states will seek to have a crack at us and pick at it and use our open system of justice against us. We in the community know we need to have the laws that enable us to have the right security measures in place that actually has the deterrence and the effect to, to protect those secrets. Without that, we're going to be in peril. I'm going to pivot to uh, your engagement with the wider community, with industry, with the public debate, um, with our uh, with, with our federation. I'd go that far because uh, you know the world has changed. We're now seeing uh, intelligence leaders speaking more in public. I mean, I think uh, Mike, your your threat assessments have been a really notable um, achievement, and I hope that's something that's here to stay in the Australian intelligence landscape. We've seen our, our friends in the United Kingdom using um, rapidly declassified intelligence judgments um, as a way to inform uh, what's really going on uh, with the um, the conflict in Ukraine. And, and I think in a sense, by providing that information, there's a bit of influence at work too in a, in a very positive way in my view. But there are still things that a lot of uh, influential people, decision makers, institutions in this country uh, probably don't know all that well about what the intelligence community thinks or does. I could be wrong on that. It'd be interesting to know what engagement with uh, with industry, with the private sector, with state governments, uh, with civil society actually looks like for your agencies in this new world where so much information is there in the open source and where there's basically a narrative battle, a battle of uh, disinformation and counter-disinformation going on. I mean, are, are we doing enough? And I'll, I'll start with you, Mike. Uh, yeah, thanks. That's a great, great question. Um, I could come at it in so many different ways. Um, I, you know, I, I will I'll just be honest here. I, I, I have a reaction. I know you're not suggesting this, Rory, but when people say oh, the intelligence agencies don't share enough, they say that a lot in cyberspace. That kind of does my head in just quietly. Um, you know, we, I'll speak for AZ, I know Andrew should speak for what ONI does, but actually other than say we do things together sometimes and we're out there outreaching to members, community, industry, heads of industry, and we're sharing a lot because we know there's no point having this stuff if we're just putting it in a filing cabinet for government to read, which is great because they'll read it and we can help shape that environment. You talked about the policy uh, impact that we have, the positive impact we have. It needs to go wider than that, and I think we've done a good job. Could we do more? Yes, we know that. We'll do more. But actually, there's stuff that will stay inside the vault for very good reasons, and it comes back to another element we might get to in terms of the need to protect sources and methods. But of course, in the end, you talked about the declassification of information for effect because it needed to be used. Um, we know that, and I think we're doing very well in that one. I'm a big believer in, from my agency, the reason why I started the threat assessment is I think I have to explain to the people of Australia the threats we face. There's no point just having a view of it. And of course, we could just have a view and take our own action and deal with it quietly. But I think it's important not to alarm them, but just to help them understand the world in which we live. Because security, from my point of view, is a shared responsibility. And if people know what they face, they're part of the answer to help our country uh, be more secure. Andrew, what's your perspective? Well, I just want to say I, I think the work Mike does with that annual threat assessment is really profoundly important and uh, obviously there are real sensitivities about um, agency heads speaking publicly, uh, starting right at the heart of everything, of course, with protection of intelligent sources and methods. But Mike's right. We, we don't want to cause unnecessary concern. Um, far from it. Um, our job is to keep people safe and we want people in Australia to feel that everything possible is being done for them to be secure, frankly, so they don't have to worry about these issues in their daily lives. So I think that's incredibly important. And if Mike's in public or I am or our other agency head colleagues, um, listeners should, I hope, um, understand that we're incredibly careful about what we say and when we make those interventions and we do it 
for a set of good reasons, and they're carefully thought about, carefully weighed, and carefully measured. Uh, so I think that's important. One of the things that surprised me a little about taking on my current role is how much time I spend interacting with business leaders, with uh, CEOs of some of our biggest companies, boards, uh, industry groups, uh, vice chancellors and their, their senior leadership teams. And ultimately, that's incredibly important uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that in that more complex strategic environment I outlined at the start, the old barriers that let us think about uh, economic policy and prosperity in one kind of silo over here and national security and all those difficult issues over there is completely broken down. And, you know, for me in the last couple of years, the one event that's had the, the greatest sort of impact catalytic effect here was Russia's invasion of Ukraine. When you could make conceptual arguments, I think, to business leaders and uh, vice chancellors and state premiers about geopolitics and about threats and you know, Mike and uh, Rachel Noble, our ASD colleague, and I spent a lot of time talking mm. to them about cyber threats and, you know, physical security and all the aspects of, of security. But that event sort of broke the, the sort of somewhat trance-like state that I think uh, many of our uh, non-government leaders were in about what was actually happening in the world. And so, I see our business leaders responding to that. They're more concerned about their supply chains. They're more concerned to diversify their markets because they're aware that economic coercion is a reality. Australia has experienced it. Many other countries have experienced it and are still experiencing it. And we need to um, be providing some of that contextual information to those business leaders and bringing them into our confidence more than I think we have in the past. But also, we learn an immense amount from them yeah. about what's happening in their part of the global market, about trends, about uh, technological development. So it's a very much a two-way interaction when we have those discussions. And state governments, state and territory governments are also frontline players on a lot of national security issues in ways that perhaps they didn't imagine they would ever need to be. So just to be clear, and I'll go to you first, Mike. Do you have regular contact with state governments on these issues and how, how does that work? Yes, yeah, certainly we do. I mean, I have offices in every state and territory and my offices there are regularly engaging with their Victorian or New South Wales government counterparts. Um, I will routinely see a Premier when I'm in town or see a Secretary of Department, essentially Prime Minister and Cabinet run regular meetings with um, equivalents to talk about these uh, matters because, as Andrew said, we've been out there more. Like Andrew, I've been surprised how much of that we've had to do but it's good that we're doing it. It's right that we're doing that. Andrew? Yeah, I'd just say, like Mike, um, I do a lot of outreach, obviously, in, in state capitals. But when I do, I always um, offer to to go and meet the, the Premier or the Chief Minister, and I've never had a knockback when I've, when I've made that offer. And I've found the state Premiers uh, that I've, I've met with take their responsibilities for security increasingly um, uh, to heart, and they are more aware of the complexities around uh, engagement and economic interaction and security, and they are, like the rest of us, like we are as a country, uh, having to work harder at that that balancing and understanding where the risks are and where the benefits are and what the what the net of that looks like for their business or their state. So I guess I, I'll say it. Um, we can assume, therefore, that when we hear state premiers talk about security issues, sometimes they they know more than they're saying. Um, that's a nice a nice thought to um, to take away. Look, I want to conclude the conversation on um, issues of workforce and people because we. We talked a lot about that uh, earlier. We alluded to that, but that is absolutely at the heart of what you do, clearly. Uh, the National Security College plays its own part in seeking to develop the uh, the human capability that Australia needs for a secure future. And whether our students or our, our course participants go uh, back into agencies or go to work in agencies in the intelligence community or in the policy departments or other parts of the system, we know 
there's a massive amount of work to be done to ensure that Australia has the talent it needs for a secure future. So I'd just be interested in some reflections from both of you on what's the challenge, what's the opportunity, what do we need? Uh, it's clearly uh, a, an exciting and rather daunting career. You don't make it sound easy, uh, either of you, but um, I'd love to hear some thoughts on what should we be doing. Andrew? Uh, Rory, this is at the heart of so much of what Mike and I talk about together and with our, our colleagues. You know, I talked earlier about the importance of our people and I think, uh, you know, there's nothing more fundamental than looking after the the great people you have. So uh, as an agency, and I know right across the community, retention is, um, is right um, front and centre for us all. And, of course, that's getting harder in an environment of, of – Skill shortages, as I said, we've, we've, we've all got these incredible people and they're in demand. And, um, you know, we have to work harder to, to hang on to them. We also have to be more strategic about thinking about what the pipeline of people is. And we also have to, and this goes back to my earlier comments about sort of unity of effort and the national intelligence community being more than the sum of the parts. We've got to think in different ways about this. And so I've changed the way we measure retention so that if someone leaves ONI to work in ASIO or ASIS or the Defence Intelligence Organisation or any of the other agencies, it's not recorded, it's not reported as a, as a separation. Um, uh, we need to think more um in a more coordinated way about recruitment as well, and we are doing things. For example, um, we uh, advertised recently as part of the Australian government's graduate program for an intelligence stream. Uh, that's all 10 agencies involved in that effort. And we had over a 1,000 applicants for that, which I think just tells you that uh, young Australians are no different from their predecessors in their eagerness to join the community and, and work on behalf of Australia's security. Uh, so to me, that's really encouraging. Um, here at the National Security College, the community's funded a number of uh, uh, um, scholarships for graduate students, for women who are interested in moving into the national security community and our intelligence community in particular. But I think there's a lot more we can do to make uh, a proposition to uh, young Australians, and for that matter, any Australian who's thinking about a mid-career shift yeah. um, to present a, a wider offering, which is come and be an intelligence professional in the Australian national intelligence community. You don't have to stay in ONI for 20 years or ASIO for 20 years. There are great opportunities right across the 10 agencies, many of them in Australia, many of them overseas. And then finally, the diversity piece is obviously incredibly important. Uh, we need to do much better in terms of attracting and retaining women. Um, I think we are doing better, but there's a lot more work to be done there. But other um, other minority groups as well, incredibly important. And we need to, and I'm going to tee up uh, my friend Mike here, we need to think differently about security clearances and vetting. Um, we all know that, um, especially with COVID and post-COVID, the incidence of mental health issues uh, across Australia and the way we think about those issues is completely different. Things that under an older way of thinking uh, would have been ruled out by a very inflexible system. We need, to, we need to find new ways to think about that and to make sure that we are bringing as many people as we possibly can in through that vetting process. And I'd say the same about people from, uh, from different cultural backgrounds and different um, uh, ethnicities. We need to work as hard as we possibly can to reconceptualise vetting in a world where the very people we most need in terms of their cultural skills and their language skills are sitting right in front of us. But again, if we take too rigid or too 
too old-fashioned approach to security vetting, we won't be able to maximise the talent pool that we can draw on. So there's, before I go to you, Mike, and actually you may want to touch on this as well, there is there has been a myth in some parts of the community or a perception that if you weren't born in this country, don't bother applying for a high-level security clearance to work in the intelligence Absolutely community. untrue. Yeah, yeah, and I'll come to the, 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 the so that oh, with Andrew that is untrue, but I'll come to the, some of the challenges around security in a sec. Firstly, as Andrew said, our people are the most important important asset. We can't do anything without our people, and as an engineer, our humans are actually it's a still mission. the uh, well, <laughs> it is a bigger mission, and uh, you know it's everything we do in my agency, and I know it is in the community. It's human led data-driven, technology-enabled, and it will always be that way. We're not going to have machines that go ping that generate security assessments with no human in the loop. That would be disastrous. So human, most the, important The GPT assessment ain't happening. No, no. <laughs> but it, there's utility in that technology, but we'll come to that another day perhaps, probably yes. a subject of a whole new podcast. Um, the other advantage we've got, so Andrew's right about the challenges, which every employer faces in this country. We have one thing going for us, and that's our role. Our role is unique. Across the community, people can work in our agencies and do things they cannot do anywhere else in this country. And no wonder we get a 1,000 graduates applying because they know that. People are smart. Um, and whilst we have to pay attention to what they want, what they want in their careers, younger people, younger generation are different, they say, I'm not so sure about that, as Andrew said, a sense of purpose and enjoyment in their career. But we do have to pay attention to that and we shouldn't take them to, for, for granted. Um, we have no trouble recruiting people. That example Andrew gave said we have no trouble. Retaining them, yes, we're subject to the competitive marketplace and where people may need to leave, at live and want to live and we have to accommodate that and move with them. And we're doing that and we're doing quite well in that space now. Uh, so there's nothing really new in that space. Of course, security clearance is something that can, you know, why would you wait six months to get a job when they'll offer you a job and you can have it tomorrow? We know that's an issue across the community. We've had ways of dealing with that. We have entry-level people can come in with a low-level clearance. Um, we've got to do more in that space. On the security thing, we are transforming the way we do the highest clearance in the land. That's important because of the threat environment we face. But it was also important because actually we're bringing five vetting agencies working together to one standard so we can assure mobility between those agencies because, as Andrew said, I call it a win when people leave my organisation and go work in the community. That's not a loss to ASIO. That's a win for the community. That helps. The other thing we're doing, though, is at the moment, if I can say this, and, and I, for all the vetters out there listening to me, you do a good job. This is the system we've got. It's more like a vet and forget model. We want to move to continuous assessment, and that continuous assessment actually helps us take broader risks and challenge our more rigid approach to security. So there's and part of that is application of technology, one of those trends that's happening in the world that causes problem. It also gives us great opportunity and we can turn that in a nice way to actually make sure we've got the right people with the right skills at the right time. And people do want to work in our organisations. And actually, like Andrew, final thing I'd say is I think it's great people come and do five years and go outside for five years and then want to come back um, we've had a higher than normal attrition rate like most people through COVID, but we have a higher than normal return rate at the moment. I think that's fantastic. I think creating more of those pathways, as Mike said, is immensely important. I think we're all working on more multi-classification uh, workforces, so there'll be more opportunities for a broader group of people to work in the uh, national intelligence community. And if I could put in one plug, if you are listening and you're interested in a job in our community, intelligence.gov.au. I'll give you one plug too, Mike. No, well, no. See, they can find ASIO through that website, so I don't need to plug it. There we go. See, that's just kind of a, a clue to the joined up nature of the community. And I think the idea that um, you know, the idea that somehow the agencies are going to be in a perennial war with one another for, for talent or the idea that good people can't get in because of security clearances or the idea that there's a kind of cultural homogeneity to intelligence professionals. I think you've, uh, you, you've pretty categorically um, dismissed those as, as unfounded or stories of the past. I would add to the conversation um, reinforcing that point about sense of mission, sense of purpose. Uh, if there's one thing I've learned from the contact that the National Security College has with the intelligence community and my own 
experience in, in, in O&A, which I'm sure is a culture that continues in today's O&I, is that, that contestable collegiality, that sense of mission and the fact that it's really an environment where there's not a lot of place for ego. So in that respect, um, I'm really grateful for the, the time and the candor with which you've both spoken today. I know there are things that you cannot say and there are questions that I wish I could get uh, more out uh, with. But having said all of that, I think this has been an incredibly useful conversation. Uh, I want to thank both of you for your time. And I also want to note that um, as well as uh, being appreciative of the scholarships that the intelligence community provides to the National Security College or provides specifically to uh, some extraordinary young women who are working in this space or studying this in this space, I think it's great that we could use this conversation to acknowledge the, the contribution that Alan Gingell, uh, the late Alan Gingell made to acknowledge and, and really celebrate his work as well. So on that note, um, I'm going to thank you both and we'll conclude the podcast. Thanks, Roy. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.